I work in the direction of sound, which for me is the solid basis of music, my raw element. The intellectualism has nothing to do with our time and the new concepts. Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. We're your hosts, I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. Today we will talk about French composer Edgard Varese, often described as the father of electronic music. Electronic music arguably began with the futurists in Italy in the early 1900s, specifically Luigi Russolo's Art of Noises. A Sunday Times review called Varese the great emancipator of noise. He transformed the clamor of big city life into clear musical images. World War II technologies like broadcast and recording gave new methods for controlling sound, and by the Cold War, electronic sounds became a norm in the public's imagination. Varese had a huge influence on John Cage and many other avant-garde American artists in the 40s and 50s. Cage said of Varese, He fathered forth noise, which makes him more relative to the present musical necessity than even the Viennese masters. You belong to the night. I got to know Varese's music first when I was about 13 years old. I had a very progressive band director in my junior and senior high school when I was growing up. And he was really, really hot on Varese, and he, he lent me some, some records. And I have to say, it really did change my life musically. I had never heard anything like Varese. And it was just marvelous to me to hear what he had done with sonority, these combinations of instruments, specifically the remarkable use of percussion. This is Jonathan Bernard. I am professor of music theory at the School of Music, University of Washington in Seattle. The first thing I heard when I put on that old LP was ionization, the all percussion piece. And I was just amazed to hear that a coherent work of music could be written with just percussion instruments. Of course, I was 13 years old, what did I know? But it was an ear-opening experience. And actually, I think that that's a great place to start. Uh, if you really want to understand Varese, understand, first of all, that you can do this without instruments of definite pitch, that the kinds of sound structures that he created are still available in that medium. It doesn't require actual pitches at all. Varese was born in 1883 in France. He spent most of his childhood with his maternal grandfather. When he was 10, he went to live with his father's family in Turin, Italy. It is at the Turin Conservatory where he received his first music lessons. 
He never felt at home in Italy. His relationship with his father was tumultuous and grew to hatred. He went to Paris in 1903, and at the Paris Conservatoire, he learned composition from Charles-Marie Widor. Varese spent time in the Paris avant-garde scene, where he patronized gatherings that had intrigued modern classical composers Claude Debussy and Eric Satie. By 1915, he was released from the French army and went to New York. He was specifically influenced by Italian futurism, Russolo's Art of Noises, and he was one of the young students that fell under the spell of Richard Wagner. I'm Alan Clayson, and I'm the author of a biography of Edgar Varese. I'm also a musician. Chiefly, I mean, even today when I say I've written a book about Edgar Varese, people wonder who the hell he is. And I had to explain, well, you know, he's contemporaneous with Stravinsky. And I think a lot of the problem lies in the fact that he is probably the least prolific of the famous, if that is the word, the famous modern classical composers. Because over his whole career, there are only about a dozen known works that have appeared. I think in his early life, he wasn't particularly inspired to be a necessarily composer. I mean, he made his living as a conductor, as a tutor, as a transcribing music. And even once upon a time, he, he got a job selling pianos. Um, he used to, when he was in Paris and later Germany, well, Berlin and then back in Paris again, he sort of rubbed shoulders with people like Mahler, Ravel, uh, Richard Strauss, people like that. And his earlier works were, in fact, quite orthodox. I mean, the, the prime example being Le Grand Sommet Noir, Noir, which is probably the closest he ever came to an orthodox song, which was actually his music to verse by the French symbolist poet Paul Verlaine. And I think that he also breathed the air around people like Schoenberg and Stravinsky, Provokiev even, um, at the time. And, and what was, I think, what was frustrating to him was that they seemed to be getting some sort of recognition while he was still struggling. I think he spent a lot of the time talking about what he was going to do without actually doing it. It was a case of, you know, Stravinsky, people like that, they're not going to do what I'm going to do tomorrow, that sort of thing. He was influenced by Wagner's Parsifal, but instead of searching for the Holy Grail, Varese wanted to find the bomb that would make the musical world explode and let in all of the sounds which up until now, and even today, he said, have been called noises. Wagner's Grail was the ego consciousness and finding of the self. At a time when music was uncertain and ever-changing, Varese searched for the modern sound, the sound that would define his generation. That was Varese's Grail. That is what would define his work and his self. Upon meeting him, essayist Anais Nin wrote in her diary, He is a man that lives in a vast universe, and because of the height of his antenna, he can encompass past, present, and future. This is an excellent quote that speaks to his ability to understand the past in a way to destroy it. 
to live and work in the now while shaping the future. In New York, he ran with avant-garde expatriates like Francis Bacabia and Marcel Duchamp. Critic and modernist at the time Paul Rosenfeld wrote of this group of artists, they created a life of unity in the forms of expression of industrial civilization and fierce lights, piercing noises, and compact and synthetic textures. Verez was influenced and fascinated by the noises of New York and the 1920s. I think that after he'd sort of absorbed all these influences, he sort of very much went his own way. Like Schoenberg before him, Verez's early atonal period broke down language and form into a stream of sensation. His screaming chords seemed to have no emotion tied to them, no history or future, just very present in the now. Verez's compositions were secular, spastic, and solitary. Very early on, I mean, even back in Berlin, he completely suspended major and minor mode and even tonality. In a way, he kind of took the whole concept of music back to its bedrock, really. I suppose, in a way, he kind of took it back to sort of medieval music. But when you listen to something like Arcana or um, Hyperprism or something like that, there is no discernible melody. The only key, if there is a key in it at all, it is an implied key. He doesn't seem to sort of adhere to the old rules of harmonic at all. And that's what caused a lot of the trouble at the concerts, because people weren't able to latch onto it. People that had been brought up to the old sort of tonic sulfur, even the chromatic scale, didn't know where to begin. And it, it was kind of impenetrable to them. The 1920s found audiences receptive to disruptive sounds. Scholar of the time, Carol Oha, wrote that there was a new marketplace for modernism. Alex Ross described it as, American music had grown from a well-behaved, Eurocentric childhood into a rambunctious adolescence. Some composers adopted a strategy of avant-garde and rattled off dissonance and percussive sounds, while others used a sprinkling of jazz throughout their symphonies. The American public responded well to Verez's ultraviolent music. His first American work, Amérique, was presented in Philadelphia in 1926 with favorable press coverage. Rosenfeld said of Amérique, it was a signal to the old world of the essence of the industrial giant of the North. This warlike industrial giant character rears its head again in Verez's work Ionization, of which Dorothy Norman states it is not music in the sense that it attempts to lull. Verez wanted to bring about a cosmic disturbance. Verez's proclamation about his music and the ethos of his music in his own words. Voices in the sky, as though magic invisible hands were turning on and off the knobs of fantastic radios, filling all space, crisscrossing, overlapping, colliding, crashing. Phrases, slogans, utterances, chants, all the opposing democracies and fascist states breaking their paralyzing crusts. He was asked this question, do you think that modern composers have abandoned melody? And of course they were 
wondering about him in particular. And he said, well, no, actually, they haven't really abandoned melody. In my music, there's a, there's a very strong melodic line running through all of my work. But in my case, the line is vertical rather than horizontal. And you see what, what that means. It means that the, the space that these huge harmonies that he would assemble would encompass was actually the operating concept in, in the work he was doing. It was the space that they filled. And if there was any kind of the, the, the horizontal connection, in other words, the connections through time, were all at the pleasure of these gigantic spatial harmonies. So, yeah, it's a, quite a different way of thinking about music. Some people have compared it anyway uh, to sculpture, in that uh, you walk around, you, you look at a transferring this to the spatial dimension. You, you walk around uh, a sculpture, say, and you see certain features of it from different angles. And yes, you recognize these features when you see them from different angles, but they look different because the perspective has shifted as you've moved around, around the sculpture. And this is often the way it actually works in, in Varese's music. You'll hear in these little snippets, which are sort of melodies, come back uh, later on in the piece. You say, oh yeah, I heard that before, but it doesn't sound quite the same. It's been, something has been changed. And yeah, it has been changed because the context has changed, and you're now hearing it in a different way and from a different angle than you heard it the first time. His music and the way he described it uses language of revolutionaries. His music is like shooting stars, recurring, like pounding hammer blows. Verez wanted to encompass everything that is human, from the most primitive to the farthest reaches of science. Verez and the modernists wanted to feel something again in music, to surprise, to shock and awe, not unlike the Italian futurist composers from a decade before. Two major technological advances happened with the First World War. First, electrical recording allowed for a rich sound quality unheard of previously. Author Henry Miller wrote, I remember vividly the first time I heard Verez's music on a magnificent recording machine. I was stunned. The modern sounds of Verez floored Miller. He had to hear it again. Upon a second listen, Miller recognized emotions he had experienced the first time, but due to the novelty of the sounds, he was unable to identify them until after multiple listens. Modern music, now able to be recorded in a quality unknown before, gave the listener time to think and revisit the music and find new sounds and feelings that couldn't have been caught upon first listen. The second major technological advance was radio transmission, allowing for live broadcasts across the country. You no longer had to be in Manhattan's elite or even live in a city to hear a concert from the New York Symphony or the Metropolitan Opera. Leopold Stokowski, co-conductor of the NBC Symphony, was one of the first to get tired of old-world European classical music and started to advocate new music. He was an avid supporter of Arez and promoted many modernists in the 20s, much to the chagrin of higher-ups at General Motors, the biggest sponsor of the NBC Symphony. Later, Stokowski was fired for championing Verez and the new music scene. The modern movement lost a fervid supporter when they lost Stokowski. 
Henry Miller, and many other fans of modern music in the 1920s and 30s were fed up with Western classical music. Music that is so obsessed with form and tone entities that it forgets what Miller calls sonal energy that gives music its life. Miller continued, Tone entities are dead because they are empty. We call them pure tones because they are so pure they will never do any harm. Art for Miller, as for many American romantics like Alfred Stieglitz and Walt Whitman, is supposed to wake humanity up, to enrich the person, to stimulate the imagination, and the new music movement did this for Miller and for authors and writers like Paul Rosenfeld, who wrote extensively on Verez and the modernists. He found that the technology he had at his command in the sort of 30s and 40s didn't match what he could hear in his head. His composition, Equatorial, completed in 1934, allowed him to showcase new sounds and new instruments. He included parts to be played on two fingerboard theremin cellos, an electronic instrument. The theremin, invented by Leon Theremin, was designed just after the Russian Revolution. It consists of a wood cabinet on which are mounted two antennas, one to control pitch, the other volume. Its tone resembles a cross between a stringed instrument and the human voice. Theremin virtuoso Clara Rockmore showcased the instrument at Town Hall in New York in 1934. Her performance left the audience spellbound. It looked like the music was floating in thin air, and the Washington Post notes that the theremin plays as if by magic. Verez, mesmerized by the range of sound, demonstrated this instrument while giving a lecture in 1936 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In 1933, Verez wrote a letter to the Guggenheim Foundation and Bell Laboratories requesting a grant to develop an electronic music studio. He was rejected and fell into a state of depression. For 15 years, he didn't write anything at all because he was so discouraged by the response to it. As far as interpreting what his real legacy might be about, uh, we have those pieces from the 20s, and they really are, I mean, as much as anything, those stand as the essential Varez, those pieces, names of which we all know from Amerikan, we have Ofran, Octandre, Hyperprism, Antigrau, and then, of course, another big orchestral piece, Arcana, and then just into the 30s, we have Ionization, the famous piece for percussion. But after that, things do get very sketchy, and... Who knows what uh, his output might have been like if he had been uh, in better psychological condition, I think, and with better support mechanisms, if his application for a Guggenheim hadn't been repeatedly rejected and all of that. Those were unfortunate circumstances. But mainly, it was that he had these terrible black depressions, which his widow, Louise, testified to when she wrote about him later on after he had died you know he would stay up all night working on something and then he'd be furious with it and want to just tear it up and start all over again and at one point she has testified to this too he he finally said why don't you just take all this stuff out to the curb and leave it for the trash man and that's what happened to a huge amount of what apparently of what he had been doing during the 30s and 40s so that's why we don't have very much music at all. He was working, but he just wasn't finishing anything. 
Um, I think the, the most obvious example is he his first ever performed work, Borgoyne, which was named after when he used to go on holiday in Burgundy in his youth. Um, he, he actually destroyed that quite late in life because he, he sort of wanted to leave no trace. Or he, he rather his, he wanted his legacy to be exactly the way he wanted it. And, you know, as a result, he, you know, I suppose that's why he ended up as a kind of cult celebrity rather than achieving sort of Stravinsky size world fame. It took 20 years after the rejection from Bell Labs for Varez to finally incorporate electronic sounds into his compositions. Varez enjoyed some creative renewal around 1950 through his experiments with tape. He went to Darmstadt in 1950, which connected him to the contemporary European avant-garde. By 1952, he met Pierre Boulez in New York and Karlheinz Stockhausen two years later in Paris. He imagined a, a means of producing pieces that was not actually technically feasible given, given the equipment available at the time. Technical means of sound production that were available were simply not commercially feasible. Nobody wanted to spend the money to develop them because there was no money in it. It was only at the end of the 40s that finally there was such a thing as a reel-to-reel tape recorder that you could purchase, and someone gave one to Varela's anonymously in about 1948, and that's when he finally was able to go to steel mills and factories in various places near New York, uh, mostly mostly in Pennsylvania, and record uh, the sounds of these factories at work that became raw material for the soundtrack of Desert the electronic interpolations in Désert. Varez gave his first performance of Désert, with Boulez giving the introduction and Stockhausen running the tape relay, an important moment in the history of electronic music. Désert was Varez's creative revitalization. It was the first major achievement of his since 1936. Désert brought tape and orchestral music together. Tape sounds intertwined into an orchestra of wind, piano, and percussion. It alternated between orchestral sections and what he would call organized sound. However, Cage criticized Varese's famous work, saying that it attempts to make tape sound like the orchestra and vice versa, showing again a lack of interest in the natural differences of sounds, preferring to give them all his unifying signature. The biggest influence was just this ability to think about music in an entirely different way. Uh, he was an inspiration, in other words. He was an inspiration just because he, what he did was so different and was so uncompromising. He apparently didn't care whether he was successful or not, although that's not quite true. He would have liked to be successful, but he wasn't willing to, because apparently he, he just couldn't. He, he, he couldn't write music any other way, so he carved out the best career he could under the circumstances, and for a while he was successful. While Varese was obsessed with the fundamental nature of sounds, he did not have the technique like Stockhausen to create the musique concrete electronic music. 
Varez did not get himself trapped into the limitations of the technology, but explored electronic modes of music alongside and integrated with sounds of the traditional orchestra and the recorded sounds around him, from modern urban life like sirens and airplanes to the bells of the Gothic era. John Cage, in his book Silence, wrote something quite nice about Varez, a fairly short piece towards the end of the 50s, actually while Varez was still alive. But what he said was that though Varez was the first, I'm quoting from him now, though Varez was the first to write directly for instrumental combinations and ensembles, giving up the piano sketch and its orchestral coloration, his way of doing this was controlled by his imagination to the point of exploiting the sounds for his own purposes. So he said, rather than dealing with sounds as sounds, he dealt with them as Verez. In effect, what he was saying was that, uh, you know, Verez was more tied to an older way of working than, um, than he, than he, John Cage was. And he was, he was, that Cage was, Cage was going to go further than that. According to musicologist Richard H. Brown, there was a clear correlation between Cage's and Verez's interests. However, there was a real difference in their approach to the use of magnetic tape. Brown concluded that Cage moved forward into the unknown sound hidden beneath magnetic tape, while Verez adhered to structural principles to the end. Between 1954 and 1958, Verez spent a lot of time in Europe. At the 1958 Brussels World Fair Exposition, Verez, in a futuristically designed venue called the Philips Pavilion, was created by the architect Le Corbusier and mathematician and composer Ioannis Zanakis, and it was paid for by the Philips Studio. The pavilion is described like a tent that isn't fully secure, so it's like two teepees connected to one another. The building used a span of wires in the shape of a fan or harp to create the structure that was then covered with concrete slabs. Le Corbusier had the idea of a stomach in mind. The pavilion contributed to the sound of Verez's piece Poème Electronique, which is known as one of the early electronic masterpieces. The composition included electronically generated melodies and distorted organ sounds and industrial noise. The material was very diverse. According to composer Dick Rajamachers, Verez wanted to begin the piece with the largest bell that could be found in Holland. The bell was at the old church at Delft, a Gothic Protestant church. Using a collage of studio recordings, altered piano sounds and bells, Verez showcased the eight-minute composition on 425 loudspeakers spread throughout the pavilion, so the sound could recreate the building itself. Zanakis's concrete PH played in between Verez's poem, and images by Le Corbusier were projected around the pavilion. Two million individuals attended the performance during the fair. After this performance, Verez said that he had heard his music for the first time literally in space. I think that a lot of the time, particularly when he was doing the um, poem Electronique, the Brussels um, World Fair in 1958, that sort of music was assembled like second by second. And I think it was the same with all the other works as well. You know, like Amériques, it seemed to sort of change mood every few bars, I suppose. Leading up to this performance, Verez spent months in Philip's studio, Eindhoven Lab. 
where he played with equipment that was used to measure sound. It was equipment that gave one pitch and then you could manually manipulate the sound. This is what Varese wanted to do, to design and mold sound without being an instrumentalist. Dutch composer Rajmakers demonstrated the equipment by playing the last fragment of Poem in a documentary called Poem Electronique. in some ways a dream for him to get to do this because he had for the first time an actual studio at his disposal but working relationship with the Dutch engineers was apparently not great I don't know that anyone really knows the details of that but apparently it wasn't very happy and basically you know here was a composer who was already well into his 70s who had never done this before and you know they always say you can't teach an old dog new tricks well he had always imagined what this might be like he had thought about it quite a bit but actually you know having to do it and having to say to the technician okay this is what i want well this was in the days before synthesizers you can imagine that the eventual eight minute composition or whatever it is about eight minutes would have to be assembled in these tiny little slivers of tape every little sound spliced together it must have taken forever, and it was undoubtedly a very, very time-consuming and frustrating process because no one had any real technique for doing this. It was all pre-synthesizer equipment, the so-called classical electronic music studio equipped with potentiometers and filters and, and uh, sine tone generators, and that's about it. It's hard to imagine anybody being able to do any of that now. There was a fundamental tension between the electronic music composers of the time that still plays out today. That is, the conflict between thinking as a technician and as a composer. Varese as a composer was not as interested in the perfection of the sound that is made with the equipment or focusing on what the equipment can do. Rather, he was interested in the feel of the sounds, the imperfections, the aesthetics it created in the mind. In the end, Philips Studio spent $6 million on Poem Electronique, the composition and the pavilion combined. The board of Philips Studio did not trust Varese and Le Corbusier because they were artists and they were afraid they were going to create something that would not resonate with the audiences, that it would be anti-human, barbaric, and so they went behind Varese's back and hired Henri Tomasi, a traditional ballet and opera composer, to do a shadow composition over Varese's work and presented it to Le Corbusier. Of course, he rejected it. Varez resented Phillips for not giving his art the respect it deserved. Phillips, the people who were sponsoring the pavilion, who were paying for it, really, really were, were skeptical about the wisdom of having Varez produce the music for this show called the Poème Electronique. They wanted someone who was more conservatively inclined, someone whose music they actually uh, understood. And uh, it was only at the insistence of Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier actually had to say, I won't do it. I won't do this design unless Varese is in the project.
Described by some as a sculptor of abstract sound, he thought of his music as an arrangement of objects in space. As he explained to his then-young admirer, Morton Feldman, who was also a close friend to fellow composer John Cage. Both men highly influenced by Varese's modern skepticism with American pop culture and his need to destroy the status quo in art, would carry on the tradition of disruptive avant-garde sounds. Varese acquired some society glamour. Rosenfeld's book, An Hour with American Music, concluded with a chapter on Varese where he states, but the greatest fullness of power in the prophecy yet to come to music in America lodges itself in the orchestral composition of Edgar Varese. In Making Modern Music by Carol Oha, she said that even with many favorable reviews and acceptance in New York's art scene, he still felt like New York didn't get him. The, the actual number of works is not large, and... Several of them require very special arrangements to bring them off. So it isn't as though this was music that was destined to enter the mainstream at any point. It's not stuff that, that just anybody could pick up and play. In other words, you almost needed special instructions to be able to do it right. And there wasn't an awful lot of incentive to do it because uh, mainstream audiences weren't that interested, never have been interested really in radical concert music. So there's always that problem. Unlike Haydn, who wrote 104 symphonies, you know, he was very exacting about what came out. Another key figure is Frank Zappa, who, who is became the principal mouthpiece of Berez in, in sort of the English-speaking world. I began to search for sort of biographical information about Frank Zappa. And through this, I learned that um, Edgar Varese was one of his favorite composers. And as a result, I bought a, an Edgar Varese album. And um, my first uh, impression of this was that I thought, how could anybody like this stuff? But I listened again and again and again. And after a while, not so much particular tracks, but certain sections of particular tracks began to assume a sharper focus. A lot of, sort of self-improving rock and roll musicians, you'd hear Varez blasting out of their car stereo, um, largely as a result of, of, of somebody like Frank Zappa saying he liked him, and actually using an expression by Varez that you know, the present day composer refuses to die was, was printed on sort of early sort of mothers of invention albums. In any case, Varese was a pioneer in the electronic music movement and with post-war American modernists. His influence can be felt from Yanis Zanakis to Frank Zappa. Zappa wrote, I had a genuine lo-fi record player. My mother kept it near the ironing board. I took off the 78 and carefully moving the speed lever to 33 and a third. It had never been there before. Turned the volume all the way up and placed the all-purpose osmium tipped needle in the lead-in spiral to ionization. I have a nice Catholic mother who likes roller derby. Edgar Varese does not get her off, even this very day. I was forbidden to play that record in the living room ever again. In order to listen to the album, I had to stay in my room. I would sit there every night and play it two or three times and read the liner notes over and over. I just liked the music because it sounded good to me. I'd force anybody who came over to listen to it. 
I can't give you any structural insights or academic suppositions about how his music works or why I think it sounds so good. His music is completely unique. If you haven't heard it yet, go hear it. If you've already heard it, I think it might make groovy sound effects. Listen again. This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams, and engineered by Ben Fiss. With special thanks to Dr. Jonathan Bernard, Alan Clayson, Ben Seiler, and Megan Avery. Check out the playlist accompanying this episode featuring songs by Edgar Varez at PressPlay on SonosphirePodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.